Hello and welcome to the New Gig Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Hodgson, and today I'm delighted to be joined by investor, thought leader, teacher and author, Diane Mulcahy. How are you doing, Diane? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So for the viewers and listeners who maybe are not aware, it would be great to hear a little bit about your uh, background, but also how you got into this thing that we're calling the platform economy, the gig economy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start. And I think that I really started thinking about the gig economy when I had my first job out of college, actually. Um, you know, I took a very typical full-time job at a consulting firm. And yeah. when I started, I thought, you know, I really miss the lifestyle that I had at college, taking all different kinds of classes, having different projects to work on having control of my own schedule, really just being accountable for results uh, versus, you know, FaceTime and politics. <laughs> so right from the beginning of my career, unfortunately, because I couldn't do anything about it, um, you know, I, I thought I wanted to work differently. Yeah. It took a while for me to be able to execute that and to be able mm. to build a portfolio of interesting work and to gain more control over my professional life. But yeah. the nub of the idea started with my first job. Excellent. So it's it, it it's been an early adopter from the beginning there, Diane, in terms of the the lifestyle, the balance, and also the, the this idea of being able to uh, deliver impact and deliver value to organisations as well, which is something that personally I can empathise with. But also a lot of people who've sort of made the uh, made the uh, leap, if you will, into the uh, in, in, into this sector, say very similar things about why they want to do this. Yes, I mean, one of the big drivers when I've done research and interviews with independent workers, you know, one of the major drivers is increasing the economy and the control that they have yeah. over their uh, professional, well, professional and personal lives, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, by moving into independent work, they can focus on picking the projects that they're interested in, delivering mm. that value and the results while retaining the control and flexibility that most people really enjoy having. Mm. And these are great points that you, you raised there, Diane, because there is still kind of the this negative viewpoint that... Uh, people are trying to slack off. They're trying to choose this lifestyle as a way that they could just hang around on beaches for six months of the year and not really have to work. Whereas the the the, the real life testimonies is people working as hard, if not harder, than in traditional nine to five roles. Uh, but because they want to sort of deliver and they're driven to be able to want to do this. Well, just like in the traditional jobs economy, there's a range of how right. people choose to work. And I think it's really no different in the gig economy. Um, there are people, they're called digital nomads that mm. choose to structure a work life where they can travel and work. Some people still work a lot while they're living that lifestyle. Other people have organized their life so they're able to mm. benefit from passive income streams as well as you know real-time active work Mm. that we think about in a regular job. So it really does vary in the gig economy. I would say for the majority of people that are in the gig economy and working independently, they are working hard, mm. um, but maybe they're working hard in a way that looks different than steady nine to five job. Mm. When I was doing interviews for my book, a number of independent workers told me about schedules that looked like 
you know, I work really hard during the year in order to be able to meet my income goals and not work as hard during the summer where I like to spend more time with my family or I work really hard during the year, but I really like to take, you know, several weeks off around the holidays and Mm. spend that time with family. So I think what's, what's amazing is that you can structure a professional life that does suit whatever schedule you want to pursue. And it doesn't have to fit in this standard structure of a five day, um, Mm. all day, every day work week. Yeah. And how does the uh, uh, how does the, the the feedback and the testimonials that the, you've been receiving from individuals working within the platform economy what what is the broad span of professions and activities that are people that are people are getting involved in? Yeah, I mean the the interviews that I've had and the people that I talk to it's incredibly broad, and I know that maybe for many listeners when they think about the gig economy or the platform economy, they immediately think about Uber or food delivery services. And those are definitely a part of the platform or gig economy, but also included in that are professional services. So, you know, I've really talked to and worked with people across industries. They could be um, independent consultants that have Mm. MBAs. They could be, Um, lawyers who work on a contract basis, uh, interim finance professionals that are highly skilled at what they do, as well as um, graphic designers, virtual assistants, Mm. editors, copywriters, graphic designers. I mean, the gig economy is incredibly broad and really does cross every sector, industry, education level, income level that you can think of. Yeah. It's, it's very similar in that way to the jobs economy. It's incredibly broad. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is people, and particularly in the media, uh, trying to pigeonhole this as something kind of linked to precarious employment, linked to kind of less control and, uh, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, a slave to algorithms and low pay uh, when probably the reality is quite the opposite of what the, uh, uh, the, the negative narratives are in the, uh, in the media streams. Well, I think, again, it's a spectrum. It, mm. it really is just like the jobs economy, just like there are amazing jobs uh, that pay really well and give you a lot of benefits and autonomy. There are also jobs that I think we can all agree seem pretty terrible to, yes. to do. Yeah. Economy, it's the same thing. You know, if you're a highly skilled professional, your work life as an independent worker looks very different than somebody who has very limited. Um, I think the better comparison is to take the person who has lower skills and is working in the gig economy and look at their best alternatives in the jobs economy. So the way that I always, um, the example that I like to draw upon is an Uber driver who maybe their next best alternative is a part-time job in a, a retail establishment or a fast food restaurant. And in that case, their, their economic situation is similar in the sense that they're not well paid Mm. They don't have a lot of stability and certainty in the hours that they have every week. Mm. 
and um, they don't have access to benefits, at least here in the US. Right. The difference is for the person who's working independently, they do have control over their schedule so they can manage their personal lives yes. more easily and they can also take on additional work. Mm. Because they control their schedule, they can also control their income to a greater extent. Mm. Instead of waiting for a boss to give them hours every yep. week um, and then risking being sent home early if it's not busy, they can control, okay, you know, I want to earn more money this week, so I'm going to work more hours. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it is important to acknowledge that it's, it really is a systemic problem in our economy and in our society that right. we have these uh, jobs or work situations that really are very poorly paid and don't mm. offer the protections that um, really should be accessible to all workers, in my opinion. Yeah. That's a great point. And you've talked a little bit about the uh, individuals and how they can access the uh, the gig and the platform economy. But what should companies and organizations be doing, Diane? How should they be uh, adapting? How should they be trying to uh, harness the opportunities and the efficiency gains from the platform and the gig economy? Right. Well, I think we have come a long way in this past year as a result of the pandemic because companies were uh, slow to adopt to new ways of working. They have been slow to think about hiring people on a contract basis as part of the regular work that they do. And they've been slow to restructure work into projects and tasks and assignments versus full-time jobs. Mm. The pandemic has really forced companies to change the way they think about and structure work at a very fundamental level. The fact that everybody had to go remote and had yep. to be managed remotely mm. um, really forced companies to implement change. And I think there is momentum around that, around that change. So I think even as the lockdowns ease and as companies come back to what is likely to be a hybrid model, yep. um, I do think there will be more openness to working with independent workers and workers who aren't in the office and therefore can be geographically dispersed. Yep. And therefore it's easier to think about having those workers either as employees or as, as contractors because mm. the companies already have the management systems, the data systems, the security systems all set up. That's already yep. happened. So hopefully it's become much easier and there's less friction to yeah. hiring independent workers. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of the the time has been is now because it's been moved forward by the pandemic. I mean, I, I hate to say the benefits of the pandemic because that would be uh, uh, wrong and also very crass of me to do so. But the fact that the the world of work has changed and new things have been brought into focus means that we're ready and the the mindsets. Uh, of individuals working in organizations and maybe more open to this new form of work and the future of work? I think it has been a big shift in mindsets um, because nobody had a choice. I mean, this, this yeah. change was really forced on everybody. So we all had to adapt. And, you know, they say it takes three months to form a new habit. We're well beyond that. I mean, <laughs> this is the new norm now. And this is the inertia and the status quo that we have to overcome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it'll be very interesting to see what it's like to try to get people back to the office. <laughs> I mean, for some, I mean, like everything, right? Some people really prefer working in the office, but yeah. 
what all the surveys that I've seen suggest is that it's a minority of the workforce that really wants to be back, certainly full time. I think more people want to be back some of the time that mm. they can pull. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a flexible model. And I think that the hybrid model as well, uh, this seems to be something that brings its own challenges as well that uh, the the mindsets but also the organization organizational structures perhaps need to be able to be updated and adaptable to the to, to the new normal which is which is not going back to to how it was in february 2000 and uh, 2020 that's absolutely true so uh, and you know, companies aren't done adapting yet. You know, most companies that I've spoken with have not really dealt with their commercial office space situation, right? right? So, yeah. you know, as lease and as negotiations take place, companies will find themselves in a different position. And even though they've adapted to remote work, um, companies still need to think about a proactive strategy to modify how they uh, identify and recruit talent and mm. one that is much more geographically broad than perhaps yes. they're used to. Um, I, I really think here in the US, the tech companies are leading the way with that and already in a very proactive way declaring that their workforce is going to be primarily remote. And so yeah. they're already recruiting and onboarding and hiring people on that basis. So yeah. they're really the ones that are winning the talent war right now. Mm. Mm. And it is, this is it. It's the moving on of the talent and the, the uh, organizations will usually follow the talent, but also follow the money. And I know that you have your uh, venture capital hat on as well. And it would be great to hear from you from a kind of a VC perspective. Um, where is the interest in the platform economy heading? What's the sort of uh, the, the, the aspects that are coming up? Yeah, that's such a broad question. Um, what I would say is for many VC firms that I talk to, um, they have some kind of investment roadmap around the future of work or the future of labor. And that can look like investing in labor platforms, you right. know, like what we've been discussing. But it also includes a lot of other startups that are addressing real pain points for people mm. and companies that are working independently. So if you think about, you know, I don't know if you've seen that graphic where they have the old classifieds and then, you know, all the startups that have emerged yeah. kind of disrupt and disaggregate that. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of imagine the same graphic for um, the back office or the HR department of a company. Okay. And certainly for independent workers, you know, there are issues around getting paid consistently and having good platforms for mm. onboarding and for payments and for direct deposits, for accessing benefits, for making sure that um, they're able to save and pay their taxes, a lot of fintech issues. So yeah. I think, you know, it's looking at the labor platforms, but then it's also broadening out and saying, what are the issues that both independent workers and companies now have when they bring on independent workers and how are startups emerging to solve those problems? So yeah. the investment thesis is really incredibly broad. Mm. That's really interesting because what we're seeing, uh, certainly from the research that we've been doing, um, platform workers 
complaining about two main things. One is that sort of the 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 parallel universe of financial services that you know to get a credit card to get a loan for an apartment, uh, they look at your credit history. It's like, well, hang on, you don't have a fixed salary. What's yeah. going on? Uh, so the way in which this needs to uh, uh, be adapted, but also insurance as well, sort of bringing individuals themselves up to the same level as a uh, as a, as a traditional uh, economy worker, uh, and the people who are actually sort of buying, selling, and sharing things who want the insurance to give them a bit more peace of mind. So this is more of a mainstream as opposed to a uh, a side stream in terms of activity. And that is, those are two industries, um, financial services and insurance, which have been fairly slow and conservative in terms of adapting to these new workers and offering them products and solutions. Um, there is a whole category of insure tech companies that are moving into that space, right. but they're moving in cautiously. I mean, insurance as an industry is by its nature conservative. And <laughs> yes. you know, the more data and the more experience they have, the better they can yeah. kind of craft an offering and price it. But in the meantime, there is kind of unmet demand for these products from workers. So hopefully that will continue to evolve at an accelerated pace as more people work this way. Mm, mm. So it's leading from the front and hopefully that the uh, organizations and institutions follow suit within this set, within this angle there. So if we look sort of, uh, again, really broad question, Diane, and, and, and I'm sorry for this, but also uh, this, this gives you this, the, the scope. But when we're looking about the future of the platform economy, which what would your you know if i if i ask you to uh get the uh get the crystal ball out which way would you you think it's heading uh, both in from a european perspective and uh, a us perspective because uh, you folks are a little bit further ahead and have gone further down this path well my prediction would be that it's heading towards continued growth yeah. and becoming a much more mainstream way of working. Um, one of the things that the pandemic also forced, at least here in the US, um, where workers who work independently are, I would say more penalized than workers in Europe in the sense that they have a harder time accessing benefits and rights and protections yeah. that yeah. are only given to employees. And what we saw here in the US is, for example, um, independent workers were, for the first time, able to get unemployment insurance. That I'm using right. that term loosely. It's really income protection. Yeah. Um, and I think it proved how quickly we can offer solutions yeah. like that to workers to offer them that safety net and protection. Yeah. And I think now that we have offered workers those protections, I think it will be very hard to walk back from that. Mm. So. My expectation is that the gig economy will continue to grow. People will continue to choose to work independently, to work remotely, and that industries like what we were talking about, financial services and insurance, yeah. as well as policy, will really have no choice but to catch up yes. and to support yeah. this reality of the new way that people are working and choosing mm. to work. Excellent. And we here in uh, here in Europe, we have the European Commission and the, the European Parliament, other European institutions now looking at 
the framework for gig workers, workers' rights, workers' protections, linking in with the uh, Digital Services Act as well. What would be sort of the uh, the key elements you would be saying to uh, the European Commission, European Parliament, if you had them in front of you now in terms of what to do? And also, equally importantly, what not to do in terms of creating the framework for this uh, growing sector? Such a provocative question. Um, And I'm a visiting fellow at Bruegel working on a future of work project. And that really is the question. I I think at the highest level, you know, what I would say to if I had the European Commission in front of me is to really focus on solutions that extend the benefits, rights, and protections that we already give to employees, to all workers. Mm. I mean, I, you know, the thought experiment that I would suggest they undertake is if, if we were just, if we were designing a labor market from scratch today, I don't think we would come up with a system where employees are the only worker that has access to benefits, rights, and protections. Mm. It just doesn't make sense given the variety of ways that people either must work or choose to work, whether it's yeah. you know, part-time, independently, remote, whatever. So I think if we were designing a labor market today, we would say, okay, for anybody who works, what do we want to give them in terms of rights protection yeah. and benefits? And that's the mindset to get into as we're setting policies for this new gig economy. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like uh, a great starting point. And here, here to that in terms of making sure the rights, responsibilities and the, the safety nets uh, are all in place so that the, uh, the expansion of the uh, platform and gig economy can go hand in hand with the, uh, the, the necessary protections. So, Diane, I really appreciate your time, really appreciate your inso- in, inputs into this uh, really important uh, topic, which is not going to go away anyways, <laughs> anytime soon. So thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.